The Chaser Report. News you can't trust. Hello and welcome to The Chaser Report for Saturday the 30th of October 2021. I'm Dom Knight and in a moment Charles Firth and I will dive into a long chat with one of the funniest writers in Australia, David Hunt. He's the author of the Gert series of books and the new one drops next week. It's called Gert Nation and it's about how Australia came together to become one country. That's in a moment here on The Chaser Report. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A few years ago, a book came out called Gert which was the unauthorised history of Australia. It spawned a sequel called True Gert. And now David Hunt is back with the third in the series. It's called Gert Nation. And it's about the time when a bunch of pissy little colonies grouped together to become one pissy nation. Hello, Dave. <laughs> G'day, Dom. It's got echoes of today, really, doesn't it? <laughs> We're Those sitting pissy in the... little colonies all yeah. at war with each other. The three of us sitting in a room, lots of tensions in the air, and yet coming together to produce Canberra. <laughs> but, but at least, no, well, Canberra's a bit later, though, wasn't it? But they, when they had federation, they didn't actually, Canberra no. didn't exist. No, in fact, it. Canberra was a compromise because Victoria and New South Wales had at each other's guts. <laughs> yeah. So good. So Just Melbourne like and today. Sydney said Melbourne was originally going to be the capital and New South Wales said, not on your nelly. <laughs> And, and 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 so it said we're not going to sign so up to this constitution unless you put the capital in New South Wales. And then Melbourne says, eh, no, we'll let you put it in New South Wales, but it will be a separate territory. Mm. And it's got to be a couple of hundred miles from Sydney and it's got to be this size. And the mm. idea that the Melburnians had was this capital would overshadow Sydney, which they thought was a great thing. Oh, so really? It was, the idea. It was, an act of, it was an act of bastardry on mm. both parts. Because I thought it was the other way around. I thought um, the aim was that, you know, you can have it, but we're going to break it by design so that it's not a good thing to have. Oh, no, that was left to uh, to Walter Billy Griffin when he just uh, <laughs> mm. pulled out his sort of occultist compass and drew lots of circles and confused everyone. But, uh, yeah, I like the turn of phrase you had on this where at first New South Wales wanted to be re- um, identified as the preeminent place, but then yeah. Melbourne got more people, yeah. and so they didn't want Melbourne to be identified as the preeminent uh, city in the in, in the new country. Yeah, it was it was New South Wales who first said in the eighteen fifties, "How about we federate?" And being the largest and most important colony, uh, you'll do what we say. And then come the gold rush, Victoria becomes the largest and most preeminent colony, and New South Wales went dead on the idea, but. To try and actually claim that it was the premier colony in mm. 1887, Sir Henry Parks actually passed legislation to rename New South Wales Australia, to steal the name oh. from the rest of the continent. And and he passed it? Oh, he introduced it, yeah. but everybody thought, okay. really, we're just Come doing on. this to piss off the Victorians. And the Victorian yeah. says, no, why don't you rename yourself Convictoria? Because that's <laughs> what you all are. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. yeah. 
Ah, see, this is amazing. That's the thing about your books, right? So they're just full of true things that are really funny. True, useless yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because the other little factoid, I'm sure it's in this book, yeah. about Canberra, yeah. is that the name Canberra yeah. is, is an Indigenous word. Yeah, it comes from the Nunnamal name Nagambra. Mm. And it was believed at the time that it meant meeting place. And there yes. was a competition mm. to name our national capital. Yes. Oh, there were names like Aryan City. Oh, uh, really? Climax. <laughs> Uh, and, and if you've ever if you've ever uh, been to Canberra, yeah, you will realise. Yeah, no, uh, climax uh, Canberra, none. Although well, to be to be fair, there's a, there's yeah. a few desks yeah. who would, and also Fishwick, Fishwick. Yeah. That's right. And uh, Bar- Barnaby Joyce, I'm sure, would have something to he, say. He about would. It. I think he's climaxed all over <laughs> our national capital. Uh, anyway, uh, so no, the, the name uh, from the Ngunnawal language they believed meant meeting place. Mm. It doesn't. It actually means breasts. Right, so yeah. which I mean, to be fair, tits. the sky whale really brought that sentiment back. But <laughs> so it's great because one of the things um, it really is a story of of different colonies bickering, isn't it? And yeah. it's kind of fun to read now at a time we've just had several years, probably unprecedented in our yeah. lives, of the colonies absolutely going at each other. Yeah, look, or the uh, states. New South Wales and, and Victoria were were distrustful of each other. They had separate football codes, which which made the antagonism worse. Uh, Western Australia hated everybody as a matter mm. of principle. Still checks out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and the only reason that it actually joined Australia is all of its wealth was in its its goldfields and it became the richest part of the world in the 1890s and all of the miners in its goldfields had come from, oh, the majority of them had come from Eastern Australia. They were New South Welshmen and Victorian and they wanted to join the Federation of Australia. Western Australia didn't want a bar of it and then the gold miners... Pull the old Western Australian trick of saying we're going to secede. We're going to secede from Western Australia and call ourselves Australia. Australia. Sorry, it's from the Latin for gold. Oralis. Uh, Oralis. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and we're going to secede from Western Australia. And so the Premier, John Forrest, says, all right, uh, we're going to join because we can't afford to lose um, everything that's not Boring sand. Mm. So that's amazing. So long yeah. before the West Australia voted, which I think was in the 30s or something. 1933, yeah. 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 Well, they, they really hate the rest of us, don't they? And they do. And they mm. still do. Um, and, and what about Queensland? Cause what you, about Queensland? Well, and just thinking, you know, all the aw- most awful people yeah. come from Queensland nowadays. Yeah. Does that parallel hold true from back then? I, I think so. I mean, George Christensen is the last of, of many uh, secessionists who wants to split Queensland up into different states. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think he, he wants his bit of Queensland to federate with the Philippines. He, um, yeah, he, <laughs> he lives in Manila. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, no, there was a proposal in the 1890s um, to split Queensland into three, as a southern, uh, central and a northern Queensland. Mm-hmm. So that movement was quite strong for a while as well. Well, they're supposed to be separate states. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because why shouldn't they have three times as well, many votes? Well, you know, nobody trusted those shifty folk down in Brisbane because they were too close to the border with New South Wales. Yes. Ah. Which is true Which of is today. True. Yeah, yeah. today. And if you were wanting to enslave some Pacific Islanders on your sugar plantation up yes. in Townsville, those Liberals, those Liberals close to the New South Wales border looked at you a bit funny and said... You're basically slavers. Well, this is something yeah. that was really yeah. shocking in the book. Is mm. that I didn't know all that much about the blackbirding mm. that went on. I mean, you knew that people had been brought over mm. to to um, plant sugar and things like that, but mm. the, the brutality of it. Yeah, look, uh, blackbirding um, was 
basically using, in inverted commas, labour hire firms to get in ships, go to the Pacific Islanders, Vanuatu, the Solomons, um, try and lure the islanders on board. If that didn't work, you'd dong a few over the head with your cudgel and throw them into the hold, bring them back to a sugar plantation. They'd work for three-year labour contracts. Uh, Sometimes they wouldn't get paid. If they tried to move off their plantation, the police would hunt them down. Uh, Overcrowded, unsanitary conditions. Um, It it, it was pretty grim. Uh, Scott Morrison said last year Australia had never had slavery. And in the technical sense of I own this person, this Mm. person is my personal property, that's correct. But in terms of the definition of modern slavery that Mm. everybody uses today, there is no doubt that the the blackbirding practice was modern slavery. And that we still have that, by the way. We, we, we do have uh, innovative Pacific Islander labour schemes where we go to these same islands and we, uh, we bring them out here to work for below the award wage on our, on our farms. Um, the Pacific Islanders Labour's program is, is you know, arguably um, a form of modern blackbirding, if I were to be controversial. Which I just was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking more about the sex trafficking. But yes, um, one of the great things about the first girl, which I still remember, was the sensation that all of the people whose statues we looked mm. at growing up, whose everything's named after, like Macquarie and others, yeah. they were actually all um, either very weird or crooks or both. Yeah. And the great thing about Kurt Nation and indeed True Good is that the theme continues. It does. And I'm, I'm astounded at the level of corruption, incompetence, venality, uh, naked lust, greed and ambition. Um, that, of of that, Henry Parks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just, just, just <laughs> Henry. Still, and when it comes father to weirdness, Deacon. Still on the job <laughs> at, at almost 80. Uh, um, so <laughs> the... But also, and Henry Lawson was also. Wasn't he a bit of a creep or something? Or well, was that Benjamin? No, I think, I think I think Henry Lawson was just sad. He was sad. He was he was he was sad. He he tried to have it away with with artists models. He, yes, he pined right. for pined for young Hannah Thorburn just after he got married. But he was he was basically a sad alcoholic. But the great thing about Australia is it always called to our misfits and outcasts from from Britain. Uh, well, towards the end of the, the 19th century. So you've got somebody like Henry Parks who was uh, a labourer, uh, a bone-turner back in Britain, uh, wrote some pretty mediocre poetry, comes out here, continues to write mediocre poetry, but manages to become a five-time Premier of New South Wales and, you know, a 17 or 18-time father with <laughs> with many, many women. Um, hey, yeah, I love that turning over Premiers all the time was a thing that we did back then in the early days too. Yeah, no, we did, we did. Uh, well, look, back in those days, um, people had more honour in terms of, um, you know, agreeing to dissolve their governments. Uh, I think Alfred Deakin at one stage, who's the central character of my book, knew that he didn't have the numbers anymore, so he moved a motion about what time of the day it was. I move, you know, that it is... 3pm and the the opponents on the other side of the house said, no, we don't support that. And he said, all right, I'm dissolving the parliament and handing in <laughs> the prime ministership. Now, you don't see that nowadays. No, you I don't see anybody sort of just the gentlemanly way of passing over power. Mind you, I think uh, agreeing on the what time it is would be too hard yeah, for you wouldn't the get that. federal parliament oh, well, anyway. I mean, yeah, look, particularly if you invite the Queenslanders yeah. into the debate because, yeah. <laughs> gee, they'd, they'd, they'd rather crawl over broken glass than accept daylight saving. But on, on Deakin, I mean, I'm thinking mm. of the weirdo side of the mm. weirdo slash crook divide. 
I had no idea that he, mm. given that he's the hero of the book, the yeah. amount of dirt you bring on Deacon is pretty special. What are some of the, well, the delights well, of his biography? Well, look, most most of the dirt uh, relates. Like, you know, he was Australia's leading liberal necromancer. He spoke <laughs> to the dead on a regular basis. Uh, he was a spiritualist. He was not only a spiritualist, he was the spiritualist as the president of the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists. Uh, he believed that he could communicate with the dead. He believed that John Bunyan, the 17th century English writer, possessed his hand on 49 occasions and penned a sequel to The Pilgrim's Progress, unoriginally titled A New Pilgrim's Progress, <laughs> uh, which did not sell well. Uh, he took... Uh, his first political advisor was Victorian Premier Richard Heels, who'd been dead 17 years when he started advising Deacon on how to run a government. <laughs> uh, he took, and, he, and it wasn't just that. It was like he also took to Homer and Plato and people like that. Uh, well, the, 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 everybody. Uh, Deacon had a, had a got, line to everyone. He, I mean, he, if he was keen on talking to Shakespeare, uh, yeah. Prince Albert, uh, John Stuart Mills. Uh, and, he, and, and didn't he sort of convince other people that, you know, like, he was in contact with these people. Like, well, he? he did. He did. Yeah. He, he would hold seances, and yeah. lots of doctors and lawyers from Melbourne would sit around, and they'd they'd, they'd shut up the dead. Yeah. And oh. uh, we and, may and scoff, but Scott Morrison was appointed by God himself. Can we just well? Remember? What's 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 interesting is that the spiritualist movement um, really got legs because people were beginning to question the sort of biblical literalism that underpins. Christianity. Mm. Uh, they were saying, eh, man descended from Abe, Adam and Eve story, not so, not so right. So they were challenging biblical literalism. And the idea that you could talk to the dead and the dead would give you useful tips and, you know, entertain you mm. um, was very attractive because the dead were present. The mediums who, who channeled them, many of them believed what they were doing. Others, um, you know, just did knocking on tables and strange, you know, yeah. ectoplasmic trumpets in the background were, were, were clearly fraudulent. There was a carved there, liver at one point that I enjoyed. There, there, there was. There was people who believed they were touching ectoplasm when one of the uh, one of the spiritualists sort of gives them some animal liver in the dark. And, uh, and you know, Mary Todd Lincoln, um, Abraham Lincoln's wife, was the woman who really made um, a spiritualism... Popular. She invited spiritualists to the White House so she could talk to her dead kids. And if it was good enough for the First Lady of the United States, um, it was good enough for, for, for many other people. So it was actually a reasonable movement um, in Australia, particularly in Melbourne, at the back end of the 19th century. But how much was it actually known that he was a spiritualist outside the sort of ruling class circle? Well, he when when he first ran for office um, in 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 seventeen eighty, it was you know the newspapers ran articles on him that he was a he was a <laughs> spiritualist and a comptist, and the comptists were people who believed in this bizarre French calendar and an advocate of free love. So he was charged with with yeah. all of those things. So, but, but then didn't he write the articles responding to that about how he wasn't? Because he, the, he was a journalist as the, well. The great thing about um, Deacon and the great thing about the press in those days is you could write about conflict of interest, schmonflict of interest. Uh, <laughs> he would write articles later on in his career when he was Prime Minister mm. about himself refer, for, for British papers. Mm. He'd be an anonymous correspondent from Australia getting paid big money from the British papers to write about his own government and occasionally he'd be critical of himself. <laughs> uh, and indeed, indeed, Alfred Deakin, the Prime Minister, was a, was a protectionist. Mm. Uh, the 
the deacon, the correspondent, was a free trader. So, <laughs> so he had this alter ego, who, and he would cr- critique yeah. his own government and had a bit of fun doing it, I think. Which is exactly the sort of ratbaggery and fun that we, we like from your hmm. books. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why do you like Deacon? Then, given all of his shenanigans, and I mean, uh, all the stuff, his personal life was pretty bizarre as well, wasn't it? Uh, look, no, look, he had a conventional family life. His his schooling was very unusual at the, the age uh, because he was sent to an all girls school. He was the only, he was uh, the only young man attending Kyneton Ladies College. Uh, it's such a premise for a sitcom, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so off he goes uh, to this girls' school, and he's the only one who's seen and heard basically uh and he's educated as a young lady uh uh which which stood him in good stead he got in touch with his his feminine side uh women made better spirit medium so he had some you know practical experience of being a woman um but well, didn't he fall in love with a teenager though and well he married her mm. Oh, okay, fair enough. That yeah. wasn't that wasn't. She, it, I mean, she, he, at, he at was his, at his spiritualist. He he, yeah. he led the. Uh, he was in pre- his thirties, though, wasn't he? No, he, he was. He was an older man. He was not. He was not too. He was in his twenties. Oh. He was the leader of the progressive spiritualist yeah. lyceum, which was a Sunday school for spiritualists. Well, this is to encourage children to talk to the dead. And this is one of the best things about your book, Dave, mm. is that it's not just. I know we've only talked about dead white men, but mm. actually, we meet for the first time a lot of these characters. Mm. Through women, don't we? Yeah, look, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book is look at um, the rise of women's rights because there weren't too many chicks in my first two books, Gert and True Gert, <laughs> mainly because there weren't many of them in Australia. Mm. Uh, it was a very blokey, male-dominated place. The era I'm writing about, you've got some gender parity roughly in terms of numbers, mm. uh, but you've also got women in Australia really leading the world in areas of reform, women's suffrage, divorce law reform, uh, the ability for married women to own property. Uh, These were all things that happened here in Australia before they happened just about anywhere else. And so the fight for women's rights, there are two chapters of an 11, uh, over 12 chapter book that are dedicated to meeting some of these uh, uh, suffragists uh, when they were when they were young, and looking at the difficulties that they laboured under, and then having a look at them in the the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, when they were campaigning for women to allowed get out of the kitchen, the bedroom, and 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 the linen closet, uh, and into the public sphere. So that's that's a big part of this book. Yeah, and and so we actually, I think we first meet Alfred Deacon through his wife. Like you sort of talk about his wife first, and then oh, well, I talk about I talk about his sister a, 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 a bit early on yeah. in the piece, who was an incredibly impressive woman. She was the the first the first girl 
to to gradu- graduate as a 25-year-old because mm. there was no high schooling for girls when she was of the age. She went back to PLC down in, in Melbourne, uh, graduated with honours, uh, was admitted, uh, passed, passed the entry exam to uni with honours, mm. but of course couldn't go to university because... Yeah. Women went allowed, which was the British getting interfering, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so um, when Adelaide wanted to admit Adelaide University wanted to be the first university in the British Empire to uh, admit women uh, because it, its charter enabled it to sort of be open to persons, mm. and they said, "Gee, women, women are persons. Let's let's have a few of them." And Britain just said, "Absolutely not." Uh, they had the power to override. Uh, colonial laws they found repugnant and the idea of women attending university in the, the mid-1870s, which is when that occurred, was didn't happen. It did happen a few years later in the, in the 1880s. And there's a bit of a contrast too that you draw between Victoria, who was running the entire show for much yeah. of this period, yeah, yeah. and then her views on the role of women, which was very much, as per the traditional royal family, yeah. not the least bit progressive. Yeah, look, this is the most powerful person in the world. This is the ruler of the British uh, Empire. Uh, it, enormous uh, power and moral authority. And there's this famous letter that she, she writes uh, in, the, in the late 1860s, early 1870s, um, against this mad, wicked folly of women's rights. She writes in the third person, the Queen, you know, is most upset by this mad, wicked folly of women's rights and effectively saying that men and women are different and women should know their place and require male protection and who would want to protect a woman who, you know says that she's as good as a man. And so she uh, suggested that Lady Amberley, who was uh, a proponent of women's rights, get a good whipping oh my uh, goodness. For, for advancing the suffragist cause. And did she? Uh, probably by her son Bertrand Russell's tutor because uh, Lady <laughs> Amberley was so progressive, uh, the mother of all-round British brain mm. box philosopher, mathematician Bertrand Russell, mm. that she had an agreement with her husband that she would embark on a sexual relationship with Bertrand's tutor because he was pale and weedy and wasn't getting any and she thought it, uh, he'd, he'd teach Bertrand a bit better if, if he was getting some. Yeah, which is <laughs> not, not a common... Uh, it, it was sort of negotiated over the dinner table. <laughs> uh, and, and she also believed in contraceptives for women, equal wages for women. She was, um, she was very progressive. Yeah. And it's a bit surprising given the Australia that we have today um, and how much we're dragging the world in, in various things that we were the, the at the forefront of all of this sort of evolution and mm. um, also, I guess, the egalitarian nature of Australia in some ways, the lack of a class system back then. It really helped. I mean, we had the most progressive politics in the world. Uh, universal manhood suffrage was applied, you know, very broadly early on in the piece. Um you have the introduction of postal voting to allow people in remote areas to vote another world first. Uh, you have uh, allowing um, the the deaf and blind to vote with assistance, uh, which is part of the 1902 Electoral um, Act. Again, a world first. The, the first place in the world to set up a truly independent um, of government electoral office to run mm. elections. So... It looks like they regret at the moment. They, they do at the moment. And, and, the, and the modern secret ballot uh, the, that's used around the world today, um, you know, came out of Melbourne and then Adelaide in, in the 1850s. So world, world leaders in terms of um, uh, democratic reforms. Mm. And, and um, I mean, one of the delightful things is 
as you read the book, you sort of see parallels between now and then. You've got the whole uh, thing between David Syme, who who owned the Age, yeah. and you sort of describe him as a as a Murdoch type character. But he's a, he with was a soul, a, I think a, 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 a Murdoch with a soul. Yeah, 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 like he was sort of progressive Murdoch. Sort of. Well, he believed in something other yeah. than other than himself and and his own riches. But yeah. then the other fascinating was one was um, was it like. It, it, like Andrew Twiggy Forrest, his his great grandfather, was it? His, was his great look, or was it his grandfather? No, no, it was his. It was his great grand. His, his great, great uncle, grand, grand uh, John uncle. Forrest, the, yes. the Premier of Western Australia. Well, you mentioned before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, so Twiggy's ancestor David was the most boring member of the family who rose to no particular prominence. But his brothers, uh, John and um, Alexander, Alexander was the Mayor of Perth. John was the uh, Premier of Western Australia, and they sort of they, divided the wealth of they the would, West amongst they themselves. They were deeply corrupt. They no, were, no, look, certainly not, or, by, or, the, or, not or, by the standards of the day, Charles. It, I think that's harsh. Well, but they, well, did they, they literally just were self-dealing, though, didn't they? They, they got they into did, power. They, they did do a bit of self-dealing. Um, they always, they were different times, Charles. Yeah. They were different times. <laughs> yeah, different uh, times. It was called entre- entrepreneurship, Charles. It was WA. No one noticed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but also uh, immigration. Mm. Speaking of WA, immigration is a big part of the story, and yeah. you, we mentioned the blackbirding, but also the racial tensions. And mm. I had no idea that WA had actually encouraged migration from the Chinese population, given yeah, all the problems and, elsewhere. Well, and and was very embarrassed when the rest of Australia found out because the rest of Australia w- was trying to lock out the Chinese and make it difficult for them to come. Mm. And Western Australia said, "Look." Fellas, we're actually paying them to come here because nobody else wants to live here and we want somebody to do all the shit jobs. Um, so Western Australia and, and the Northern Territory, which was, uh, which had a much larger Chinese population than European population in the, in the 19th century, um, were holdouts um, in terms of white Australia. They were brought over the line in the end, but they supported... Um, Chinese migration and and Chinese labour for for quite a while, yeah. But I guess the kind of meta narrative of the book is nationhood is is that's what, what where the it's title about, comes from. Absolutely, it's about the coming together of the colonies in, in a nation, but more importantly, the development of a common Australian identity. And so, when do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, well, we're still working on it. It's a work in progress. Um, but but what was really interesting is the way that we attempted to develop a sense of Australian identity. Was, was working out who wasn't an Australian. Mm. And the way that we came together as a people was by sort of saying who we weren't. We're not, we're, not, we're not black, we're not brown, we're not yellow. We are white. We are white Australia. And it takes a particular sort of perversity to introduce an immigration policy where Britain says, look, we don't want you to look too racist because we have lots of these people in our empire. We want you to exclude all the coloured folk you want to exclude in a sneaky way. Mm. How do we do it? We introduce a dictation test. So any coloured immigrant coming to Australia after after 1901 has to pass a dictation test in a language of the immigration officials' own choosing. So they get off the boat and you happen to come from Shanghai and you will be asked to dictate a passage of more than 50 words in Finnish <laughs> or, or Icelandic. And if when you can't do that, they say... Go back to where you came from. I mean, this is such a long theme, isn't it, of us being absolute fuckwits and yet people still wanting to come and live here. The idea at the time, you had, you had, it was so embedded in the Australian psyche 
you got children interested in White Australia by playing the White Australia board game. Really? Yeah, where you had to... The aim of the game is to move the coloured folk out. You start with four coloured people in Australia and you start with four white people outside Australia and the aim is to get all the white people in, in and, and all the, the coloured people out. And this was the game that the whole family could play. <laughs> it was so honest. It was. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was honest because everybody thought it was perfectly natural. There were very, very few dissenters who who disagreed with the idea that Australia should be a white Australia. Charles, can we send someone to uh, Challenge Point Hanson to a game of this? But we don't want to tell it, teach her tactics. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of um, so terrible, it's hilarious stuff in the book. And I guess the final point is the footnotes. What a delight. Uh, no other author that I know would spend an entire page on uh, deconstructing Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> No, in the book of Australian history. No, I've, I've got almost five hundred words looking at looking at at racism, sexism, fatism, transphobia, uh, and and all of the other isms in Thomas the Tank Engine. And I just enjoyed watching Thomas for two weeks and 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 finding all of the really bad bits. So what you're saying is it's a deeply researched book. It is a deeply researched book. But look, mm. when I use my footnotes as the bits that really. Uh, Give me a chuckle. Uh, it's a it's a piss take on the academic history book where they're the most boring bits. But when you come across a character like Carl von Lederberg, who is an 1890s Essendon football club trainer and also is a dodgy doctor who injects his patients with crushed goat and guinea pig testicles uh, to improve their performance, I just thought, wow... This is what Australian history is, is all about. <laughs> I mean, the idea that it repeats itself. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's Gert Nation. It's out on the 2nd of November. 2nd of November. Available in all good bookstores and some of the crap ones too. And go and read Gert and, and True Gert before that if you haven't already. And uh, Dave and I did a podcast a few years ago, Rum Rebels and Rap Bags. We if you want to hear more of us chatting, uh, unfortunately without Charles, but nevertheless, it's still good. I think that was one of its finest features, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> See you, mate. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for sticking it out this far. It's always good to know some people make it to the end. And thank you so much for joining us for a chat that both Charles and I enjoyed enormously. We'll have a regular episode of The Chaser Report for you first thing Monday morning. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend. Our gears from Road Microphones and we're part of the ACAST Creator Network. See ya.